G'day mates, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Guitar Wank Podcast. I am your host, Troy McCubbin. I gave myself the clap then, there you go. Uh, hope you are well in these crazy times. My God, shit is crazy, as we all know. Uh, I hope you're safe, I hope your family's safe, I hope you're doing good. Staying positive, exercising, keeping a good mental headspace. Well, we're going to fuck all that up today <laughs> and, and totally mess you up because we uh, got another Guitar Wank podcast coming to you. This is episode, what is it? Episode 214, 214 episodes, baby. And uh, yeah, we're into it. We have another great episode today. Before we get into that, big news, monster news. We have a new website, ladies and gentlemen. Woo, yes. Fantastic. Guitar Wank has a new website. We hopefully have made it easier and simpler for you to go there, uh, enjoy the fruits and labours of our efforts and uh, easily find previous podcasts that uh, you might be searching for. I know a big one is, I think it's 90, episode 99V. 99V for Victor. That is the must-have jazz tunes that everyone should know or suggested by Bruce that you should you should know the 10 tunes or whatever it was. Anyway, so you can do you can do that now. You can find it, you go there and you can search for it and you'll find it and go through it. Anyway, go to the website, check it out. Make sure you're signed up on our um, newsletter so you know when a new guitar wank episode is released. Because as you know, today in these crazy times, there's not a set schedule. We might just surprise you guys and release it at any time. So you want to be in the know. So make sure you sign up for that uh, on the website. And uh, so you'll get notifications about that. We are setting up a new store. We're going to have new merch. Woo-hoo! Yeah. And it'll go out quicker to you this time. We won't have to worry about those previous bastards in the Guitar Wank uh, mail room. They were hopeless. We fired them and we're getting a new mail room. Uh, well, we're actually getting new merch. So as soon as you order it, you'll be getting it. So fantastic about that. So that should be up sometime this week, I hope. But uh, go to the website, check it all out. Uh, give us some love. Um, Hopefully you'll be able to find us on, well, we're on Spotify now, we're on iTunes. I believe we're coming to YouTube. Uh, wherever you want us to be, we're there. <laughs> Basically, that's what's going on. So there you go. So very exciting stuff. Uh, so make sure you check all that out. Give us some love when you can. Sign up. Subscribe. Thumbs up. You know, the, the standard shit that you need to do in a social media world. We would love and appreciate that. And and thank you for listening. We appreciate that as well. Uh, remember that Brucey Foreman... <laughs> just love it anyway. It's Scotty Henderson and Brucey Foreman. Uh, those kids. Anyway, uh, remember Bruce has got his live at five on Wednesdays and Saturdays for the Grumps TV show. Grab it now before it hits Netflix, guys. Then you'll be paying for it. So it's a freebie. Go to his YouTube channel. Go to Grumps. Find Bruce Foreman on his YouTube channel. Do that. Fantastic stuff there. That'll... Good laugh and something to drink too. Uh, what else is going on? He's got that. He's got a new video coming out, My Music Masterclass. I know Scott's got a new artist page up as well on, on Facebook. It's all happening. God, 
You give us a pandemic and everyone just does everything on the internets. New websites, new podcasts. What's going on with the world, right? It's nuts. Uh, what else does I have to tell you guys? I had to tell you something else. Um, I think that might be it. Is that it? Could be. There's something else. I know there is. Um, nah, that must have been it. Uh, must have been a lie. So anyway, so sign up, check them all out. Uh, Bruce is, yeah, like I said, he's got a new My Music Masterclass coming, so that'll be fun. Oh, yes, Patreon members. Patreon, if you're not a member of Patreon, go to our website, guitarwank.com, the new website. It's all shiny and polished and it looks amazing. Uh, go to the new website and you'll see up the top, Patreon. Click on that. Go over Patreon. And if you want to sign up and become a Patreon member, you will be now getting uh, one-minute Guitar Wank videos of Bruce Foreman and hopefully Scott giving little teaching in uh, teaching lessons in one minute. And I have to say, out of everything that I'm subscribed to, uh, True Fire and My Music Masterclass and all these other things that I have, which is over abundance of wealth of information that we have and <laughs> there's so much information my head explodes and I haven't got enough time to do any of it anyway this is awesome because Bruce gives you one minute one minute of Brucey Foreman and you walk away and you're like I can get that under my fingers I can take walk away with that and practice it and it's always amazing advice or amazing little uh, lick or skill or something to get your head around but you can walk away with that information in less than one minute i think it's awesome i'm loving it i'm feeling very blessed that i get to post them and i get to watch them at the same time so but anyway if you want to ha- be a part of that patreon members sign up and um, i'm going to post one of them up so you guys can get a vibe of what that's all about but they're awesome really really cool and bruce an amazing teacher he is always does an impeccable job at delivering the message in a way that you can digest it and put it into your playing. It's awesome. That's all I'm saying. Okay, so today's episode, we are going back to, uh, we're going back to drummer world. Kiss land, yes. (laughs) We're going back to Eric Singer. I want to finish that because uh, he was just starting to get into the whole playing with Gary Moore. He toured with Gary Moore for a bunch of years uh, when we had Gary still with us. And, uh, and Brian May, he toured in Brian May's original band. Not Queen, obviously, but he did get to play with Queen, which is cool. Uh, so, yeah, he was in the middle of that story telling us that. So, check it out. But uh, back when rock was rock, man, back in the day when shit was like, it was all happening and he was there. So, it's pretty cool. So I really appreciate Eric jumping in. Thanks, mate. It was awesome sitting down with you and uh, chatting away. So, yeah, so enjoy that. We've got um, Steve Cardenas coming up. Uh, I believe Andy Timmons is coming. Um, Scott Sherrod. Scott is going to be in the works. He's uh, coming up. And uh, there you go. We've got a bunch coming up. Scott, back with Scott and Bruce. It's all happening, ladies and gentlemen. So anyway, go check out the new website, give us some love, sit back, enjoy this podcast and um, please share it around, share it with your friends, your enemies. Um, yeah, this, this podcast has been known to help cure COVID-19. Yep, I said it, I said it, I said it, you can do it. 
So uh, if you know someone who might be dealing with that, send them a podcast. So it uh, might help. Alright guys, be safe out there. Exercise. Exercise. I can't stress it enough. Because it'll release stress. Be healthy. Uh, stay safe in these crazy times. And uh, I hope to see you all here next episode. Alright? Thanks guys.
He's kind of like a crooner kind of guy. Uh, I forget his name. He's got a one-word name. I know Brian and Roger played on his record. Right. And um, I kind of had a difficulty with him because he wanted Brian and Roger to play with him at the thing. Yeah. You know, because he wanted to play with the guys from Queen. Yeah. Which everybody always does. Right. And Brian agreed to do it, but Roger's like, I don't want to play with him. And Brian's like, I got fuck. I remember Brian going, I got to fuck him. And, uh, um, was it Enrique? No, not no, no, no. no. It was. Um, it'll come to me in a minute. He's an Italian guy. He's big in Italy and over in Europe, but not over here. Right. But he always gets guest musicians and people to be on his records and yeah. stuff like that. You know. And he's you know he's very f popular over there and stuff like that. And he's good for what he does. But you know we rehearsed for two weeks and. He was fine in rehearsals, and then when it came time, the day of rehearsals, the day before, all of a sudden he starts having a problem and complaining about the drums, uh -huh. about the way I'm playing. And it was a drum machine on it was a drum machine on his record. Right. And I kept and he's going, Oh, you know, I wish I had my drummer here, Frank is a guy, some guy, Frank Tonto, who's like a session guy. And I'm thinking like, for two for all the time rehearsals, you were totally fine, never said a word. Now you have a problem with it. Well, I know what it was. He wanted Roger to play. Right. And they kept saying, Oh, Roger's supposed to play and he's complaining. So I finally went over the MD was Queen's keyboard player, Spike Eddie, who's yeah. my good friend. He's an amazing guy. And I go to Spike, I go, Spike, fuck this guy. <laughs> I said, It's a drum machine on the thing. So he had a keyboard and has a drum, you know, you can program the drum machine. I go, Show me how your drum machine in here. I programmed, the, I got the record, I programmed the exact drum machine part, exactly like the record. I go, here, I go, told the guy, I go, here, why don't you just play to this? Because you you got a drum machine on there, that's what it is, I just programmed it, so if you want it to sound like your record, that's like the record. Yep. That way there's no no beef. I got no problem whether I play or not, I didn't right. care. Yeah. And he was being difficult, kind of being, a, he, was, he was being, he was being, being a jerk. A yeah. But he was doing it because he wanted Roger to play. Yeah, yeah. So then they're going, hey Roger, will you play with him? Roger's like, I remember we were in the dressing room, Roger's like, fuck that guy. <laughs> and um, so they talked him into it. Right. So Spike had one of these, it's funny thing, Spike's like, he's like the perfect, he knows how to massage everybody and you know, he's like a magician. He can get everybody to get along and smooth along. That's why he's their MD. Yeah. They need him because yeah. he really is the glue right. for Queen and yeah. has been for years. I mean, he's a great, talented guy. So he brings out this, he had a little keeper that kind of rolled up. You can buy them on uh, Amazon. Yeah. They roll up, and but you can roll them out. They're like a little, they look like a, you know, it's a little portable keyboard thing, but. Yeah, I was saying that. They're yeah. funky, yeah. yeah. So we took, we're in the dressing room, running the song down. I'm sitting here, he goes, all right, let's, Eric, come in there. Roger finally agreed to do it. They said, all right, Eric, teach Roger the song. Come in with me. So we got off the keyboard. I'm showing Roger, talking him through the parts. Here's the change. So Roger goes, why don't you do this? He goes, Eric, just um, play along. Because we had two drum kits. He goes, right. play along with me during the song and just nod to me and give me the give me the, the cues the cues for the changes. Yep. So I played the same thing that I played in all the rehearsals. <laughs> and the sound check, which was fine. The guy was, of course, happy. But why was he happy? Because right, Roger was on right. stage with him. He was just big note. Yeah. You know, so, you know, well, sometimes you have to deal with, you know, people have funny egos and they have agendas. Yeah. And, hey, I'm a team player. I'll do whatever it takes to get it right. But I just, you know, I had resigned myself to like, hey, you, you, I don't have to play if it's that, you know, that much of a problem. But getting back to uh, the guys from, uh, Brian. from, you know, uh, U2. So, they at first didn't want to really play with the band because they never played with anybody but 
themselves, those yeah. guys. They don't jam. Yeah. So they said, how about this? We'll play. They said, send us a tape of you guys rehearsing, playing the songs. So we did. Yep. And they said, okay, we'll play with them. Oh, wow. So they came down, and they were, re they were really nice. Yeah. Edge and Bono, it was just those two. They were really cool. And um, Edge, came, um, I mean, Edge came up to me at Soundcheck, and, um, and he just said, hey, um, you know, because he gave me his delay settings. You know, this song's 120 and whatever, because it's all about the delay on those guitars. Yeah. And yeah. once you get the loop right, it's like playing to a drum machine. Yeah. Because yeah. it just cycles. Playing to a yeah. It's totally, it's easy to play with them. Yeah. So we did that, and he's like, and those guys, yeah, it sounds great, fine. So then I think, was it late the night, Friday? This was The, the event was on a Saturday. I think, i trying to remember if it was Friday night or Saturday morning. I got a call. Edge and them, they want to they want to run through the songs again. They want to make sure it's right. So we had to get up early and go down there at like ten or ten thirty in the morning to the stadium. Yeah. And he wanted to run. They just wanted to be sure, I think, because they they weren't going with their regular band guys. Yeah. I, and I understood that. So we went down and did it, and it was all cool. And after the show that night, they came into the bar at the hotel, and Bono came up and said, "Hey, you got you know it was really good. It sounded great. You guys were great, and they were really cool." Wow, that's pretty cool. So yeah, so I mean, getting to do those kind of things. Um, you know, a lot of people don't even know I did those things unless yeah. they happen to watch it on TV. I mean, it was on TV around the world. Yeah, and I remember the, it. I remember you watching buy, it, man. Yeah, it was, that was one of the first ones. Yep. It was it, it was the his prison number. Yeah, yep. And it was to raise money for, for AIDS awareness and stuff. But um, they've done a bunch of other ones since then. You can find them on YouTube. But the, I think the, one of the first ones was that one. Yeah. I remember Oprah was sitting there in the chair, and I'm trying to remember who else was there. Was it Will Smith? Maybe I don't remember. Right. Um, I mean, it was like a whirlwind because literally, here's how crazy it was what I went through to get to that show. I was in Mexico doing a uh, Kiss Fan Expo, Mexico City, and I had to get to South Africa. Now, you weren't in Kiss at this point? No. Okay. So what are you doing with Kiss? You're doing... At that time, I was playing uh, with Alice Cooper still. Right. Sometimes, yeah, Alice Cooper. And we were in downtime, so because I had been Brian's drummer, Spike was the MD. Spike would hire me to do these things. Yeah. And so um, I was in Mexico City. I flew Mexico City to New York. Yeah. Waited a few hours overnight to London, eight-hour layover to Johannesburg, and then another couple-hour layover to um, to Cape Town. So 40 hours. It took me 40 hours. So I just get there, and I'm thinking, okay, finally I get there. I get to go to a hotel, and I have a rest, right? The guy picks me up, with the, you know, meets me there. He's, I'm putting my bags in the car. He gets a phone call. And they go, they put me on the phone. Eric, you got to come to right to rehearsals. The drummer didn't show up. <laughs> 40 hours. I went right to rehearsal and rehearsed all day and rehearsed every day straight for two weeks. Never had a day off. Wow. Every day, all day long, because I had to learn all these songs. And I don't, I'm not the guy that, I'm not like, some guys write charts and they do that. I memorize everything. Oh, really? I memorize everything. That's how I do it. Wow. So, yeah. So, so how do you, how, or I've got to stop you there. How do you commit it to memory so well? And um, I have, well, I have good, I have a good ear. Yeah. I'd like to think. Yeah. And I have good retention and, and good comprehension. So it's a lot of those things. It's, you know, it's being able to comprehend stuff and retain it and recall it. So it's all those things, and if you have, and I've been really good at that. I have a good ear because I, I usually, like I said, I always play with the guitar player. Yeah. So I usually, how I learn songs is I learn all the guitar riffs in my head. Right. So I know all the riffs, you know, da, da, ba, da, 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 ba, ba, all the stabs and everything. I know all the solos. So I know I have that all pretty much memorized. So, um, 
I just drove it into my head. That's a man. Forty hours and they have that much time to just well. Jump in. I had to, don't you know? I had every day. But as we're learning stuff down, um, I'm I'm. If you like, let's you say, hey Eric, I want you to play on these tracks. Yep. As soon as you give me that stuff, I'm gonna start listening to it. Right. And I'm gonna listen to it incessantly. And then once I play it down a couple times, you know, a lot of it's muscle memory. So I think sometimes it's not just learning a part. It's knowing how it feels to play that part. Mm, okay. But even though you can learn it in your head, you can do mental practicing. Mental practicing many times is sometimes as good or better. Um, so when you go to recall it, when you hear the person play it, it comes back to you because you've already heard it so many times. But you still need to know how it feels to physically play that beat and the fills a couple of times right. once you do it a couple of times then it's committed to memory i mean most of the bands i play with i'll bet you i could probably go play like that gary moore set i'd probably have to just listen to the live show down one or two three times maybe and i could probably walk on stage and play it the show even now That's and that was awesome. 33 years ago yeah i know i could do that because i remember stuff really well sometimes just i have to just hear it a few times and maybe play along to it a little bit even if i air drum it with headphones on in my room a bunch of times, I could figure it out and then get up, and I yeah. could definitely get my way through it. So you've never been one of those drummers who charts stuff out. No, I, I've done it before, right. but I just learned for me, it was better to just really learn it. Because right. uh, Paul Stanley taught me something a long time ago, because you know I sing a little bit, and I don't consider myself, you know I do sing lead on some stuff, but I always consider myself just a good, consistent, reliable background singer that sings... With good pitch, I sing in tune. You right. know, I do have good pitch, and um, so Paul used to tell me, Eric, you know, when you sing something, you, you got to really know the lyrics, and you got to really sing the song, sing it like you know it and like you mean it. So I take that philosophy to playing and learning songs or whatever instrument, whether it's not just singing it, but even how you play it. Yeah. So really know it and really play it like you mean it, because then you can play, concentrate more on feel and tempo mm -hmm. and vibe and dynamics you could focus on those things that are really important not having to think about i mean there's nothing wrong with charting stuff out but i always noticed that it's just not the same when you have to keep looking at something yeah. and trying to when you're when you play it by memory now you're playing it from here yeah not from here yeah and it doesn't it's not to say i mean a lot of guys are can read you know like they say, a fly on paper. Guys like Vinnie Caliuta, these guys that are amazing sight readers, they could just walk and put it in front of them. He could look at it a couple of times and run it down and bang, yeah. like that. Yeah. I'm not that guy. That's a special skill. But I don't think there's a ton of guys that can do it yeah. at the level oh, like he does. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's kind of like, he's like a, prof, you know, a professor of drums, in my opinion, the way his intellect and and ability mm -hmm. you know but don't forget he's put a lot of work into yeah. getting to there it's not like he's just you know some people like there's gifted natural athletes and musicians and he's clearly gifted i mean he has a, a special gift but he he's almost like a savant mm. on yeah. drums in my opinion he right. really is yeah i mean some guys just have this unique thing where it's other level and he's one of them yeah yeah wow man that's so cool so brian may obviously was an amazing gig to play. It was these guys, these guitarists, Gary and Brian, they're playing really loud. Like you, oh yeah, Gary. When on the tour, when we well, and we were in Europe, we had a big stage, so we had a really high drum riser, like maybe eh, 
maybe eight feet. Well, put it this way, he had a Marshall double stack with the heads on it, so yep. and they were under my riser. So his stacks, double stacks, were underneath me. <laughs> and he's standing in front, dead center. Yep. And he's got those amps going right into his back. And with the vocal mic, so I'm thinking like, that was, must have been a lot for the sound guy to manage. Because he's playing really loud. Really loud uh, Brian May, uh, Jakey Lee was another one super loud. Yep. Screaming loud. But I like it. I like it loud. Yeah. Brian played AC30s. Um, you know, he runs usually three of them. He's got nine of them on stage, and they're kind of like on a little stair-step metal frame. Yeah. So they kind of go three, three, three backwards, like like a set of steps. But those are in case any blow out. Right. Because they blow up. You blow yeah, AC. We blow up about at least two or three a week, on wow. a, maybe more. I'm trying to remember. Because um, we had Trip Califf doing sound, who was also our tour manager. Trip was Queen's sound man from 76 on. And uh, he was a great, amazing sound guy. He did all the Roger Waters, the wall stuff. Wow. He's a great sound guy. Yeah. I mean, he did everybody. Yeah. Steely Dan, Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson, Eagles, oh, Chicago. Man. I mean, his resume is like one of the, he's got one of the, probably the best resume of any sound man ever. <laughs> and he's really great. But he's old school. He likes analog. He's not into digital at all. Yeah. Yeah. Which some guys in the modern era don't like. You know, they, but it's a different sound. I kind of prefer the warmer sound yeah. myself. Yeah. But Brian playing those AC30s, the, the thing is, you're on stage, those are open back. Oh, so, <laughs> so you're cuffing them, which would have been awesome too. Yeah, but I don't mind. Well, yeah. when I first joined Kiss, I like, I mean, I'm a guitar head. Yeah. I love loud guitar. Yeah. So, um, and like, like I've mentioned a few times, I play off the guitar and really play to yeah. the guitar. That's my focus. Yeah. Even in Kiss now, Tommy Thayer's guitar is the loudest thing that I'm playing to. Really? I mean, I have everybody in the mix because I want to hear like I'm, you know, you, the idea with in-ears is to make it feel like you're playing to a record yeah. and you're just playing live. You're the drummer. Um, but I still keep the guitar. I need this something has to be the focus and it's always been the guitar. Right. When I first got in Kiss. But how did that come about? Uh, well, I did Paul Stanley's solo tour in 1989. Yeah. And then uh, fast forward to 1990, um, he asked me to play on a um he asked me to play on uh i did some demos first for his for the hot and shade album yeah because all the guys in kiss lived out here except for eric carr bruce kulik was in the band at the time gene and paul and bruce all lived in california in la and eric carr lived in the east coast so when they were doing demos gene and paul would write separately do their own demos and they would use local guys sometimes they go in and play drums or a guitar or bass on their demos and um, Gene, I mean, Tommy Thayer at the time was doing demos with Gene and co-writing with him and playing guitar on some of Gene's demos, even back in the older days. Yeah. And so I played on a few demos for them, um, for Paul. And then fast forward to 91, and I was playing with Alice, and um, he asked me if I could play on a, he said Eric Carr was sick and they needed to do a movie for a soundtrack, that song God Gave Rock and Roll to You, yeah. which yeah. is an Argent song. So I went in the studio with Bob Ezrin producing, and they that was their kind of testing ground to see if they were going to maybe work with Bob again. So we did that song, and it was for that Bill and Ted's Bogus Adventure or whatever, <laughs> yep, number two. Yep, I remember that. And then, so when they went to start doing the record, which was the Revenge album, they asked, um, Eric Carr was, at that point, had gotten ill with cancer. And he wasn't well enough to, they tried rehearsing with him a few times, from what I understand. Um, I never knew the full details. They tried working with a couple different drummers, 
and they, it was they weren't finding the you know the right person they wanted to work with. So Paul called me up and said he, I already had done that other song. So mm -hmm. he said, Hey Eric, can you help us out doing some recording? Because Eric Carr's not well enough yet. He's not strong enough, you know. Because you know how it is doing a record. It's long rehearsals day, yeah. long studio days, yeah. and Eric wasn't up. You know, he just wasn't well enough. And so I I ended up going in and playing on the record, and um, even though I was still in Alice's band. And then I went back on tour with Alice, um, and near the end of that year, Eric Carr passed away, so then they ended up asking me to be in the band, and that's how wow. I ended up in the band. How long did you take to make that decision? Well, I kind of had a feeling that I could kind of, I'll be honest with you, I did have a sense that, that it was looking like, I had a feeling that things weren't looking good. Right. You know, I wasn't trying to be, you know, anything negative or anything like that. And I didn't talk about it, surely, but I just had a feeling th the prognosis wasn't looking good for Eric Carr. Yeah, so yeah. I knew they're probably going to have to replace him at some point, but I didn't know um, whether I was going to be the guy. Did you, it, did you meet Eric? I only met him a couple of times. I met yeah. him on Paul's solo tour, yeah. and then I just met him once on a Kiss tour yeah. in, in 1990. I met him in 89 and 90. Um, but I know there were some other guys that I think they were considering. They weren't automatically 100% sure I was the right guy. Right. You know, it's tough when you're thinking about you're going to have to replace somebody. Yeah. And, you know, everybody's going to have a different point of view. Was Eric, how long had he been with? Was He, he was in the band about 10 or 11 years at that time. Right, okay. He was the first guy to ever replace any original member right. in 1980, I think. Who was the original drummer? Peter Chris. Pitten, of course. Yeah. yeah. And he replaced Peter. Right. And then... Um, so that was it. I ended up, you know, it was an awkward situation. You know, it was, a, I always, I remember feeling so awkward. I'm like, you know, you can imagine somebody asks you, you want to join Kiss? And you're like, yeah, but, but, oh, by the way, it's, you're joining the band because their drummers just died. Died, yeah. You know, so it was like very mixed, very awkward mixed emotions yeah. for me, to be honest. But, but, you know, I always took the attitude, hey, if it's not me, it's going to be somebody else. They're going to get somebody. So yeah. why not you? And, you know, you're not there to replace somebody. There just to help them keep keep going. Keep going. Was it was it just more of a gig? Hey, come and help us out for a while. Let's see how things. Or were they? They well, were just checking you out. Kind no, of. well, no. I think once they asked me to be in the band, they made like he's going to be the drummer. He's the new drummer. That's wow. what it was. So, but I know that there were other people that considered because I know some of the other guys. Yeah. That they because they told me some of these other guys they had been contacted and kind of talked to him a little bit and in fact Dean Castronova mm -hmm. he told me that you know he had been talking to Gene he sent Gene some tapes they talked a few times on the phone he's and he loves Kiss yeah. and he told me the next thing i heard was you were the drummer so so i know he was under consideration i think there might have been some other people you'd have to ask them exactly who may have been whether because one of my friends from Cleveland, he told me he had talked to Paul. And, you know, people had submitted tapes. A lot of guys were trying to get, get the gig because they yeah. knew that they were going to be needing a drummer. Yeah. But whether, how much they seriously considered other people, that I couldn't tell you. Now, before this, I mean, life was, for you, pretty, I mean, you'd done some amazing shit up to that point. Yeah. So, I mean, when I came into Kiss, you know, it was a little bit, I think... I think I remember Gene saying that to me when I first, when they were considering me, he goes, I like the resume. I remember he said that. So right. he liked the fact that I'd been in Black Sabbath and Alice Cooper and Gary Moore and played with Jakey e. Lee and Badlands, Lita Ford. I mean, he knew it wasn't some kid from Sunset Strip, some local band, you know, right. and 
unfortunately, you know, people play the name game sometimes, which isn't always fair, and I'll, I'll admit, because how else do you get a resume unless somebody's got to give you the opportunities to to build that resume how do you get the resume somebody gave you the opportunity but it's but it's kiss one of the biggest rock and band rock and roll bands of all time and you've got the gig that must have been like fuck man i'm here and did did you look ahead in that or was just very much in the moment like i always just stay in the moments of everything because you know i always i know I'm, i'm probably being redundant to a lot of people that might hear this but i remember staying in a hotel i think it was in europe and sometimes they'll put like these little prophetical notes or something that you know in the nightstand you know whatever and it was one of these things that said life's what happens while you're making plans john lennon yeah and i thought you know that's right and that's cool i kept that i still have it it's on it's even on the refrigerator here now i've had that for 25 or 30 years <laughs> and so i kind of use that as a mantra to live by yeah. because it is true yeah. every time i thought you know if you're in a relationship you think you're gonna go down this road and you the next thing you know it it fizzles apart and you're going holy shit what happened i thought i was you know it going this direction and now i've been given uh, you know a, a either a u-turn or you know an alternate route in life so i've just decided you know you got to make yourself just go with the flow you know maybe it sounds a little bit uh zen whatever but i would say let the let the world or let the universe guide you where you're supposed to go because no matter how much you think that you're going to supposed to do something you you sometimes you can't fight it you're you're just not destined to go that direction and so life's going to manifest different situations that are going to lead you on another path and you don't always understand in the moment or recognize why it's happening especially if something's going wrong or bad but when you look in hindsight you sometimes go well had that not happened i wouldn't be here yeah so life does you know they say you're you're where you're supposed to be yeah wow and, and you, a, a question that I've been dying to ask you forever is, how is it working with? I mean, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley are massive personalities. I mean, oh, really, big time, big time, big. I mean, especially Gene and his, you know, personality and he is and how he just everything. What's it like working for these guys? These are your bosses. Yeah. Well, you know something. I know them, I've known them a long time. I have a long history over thirty years now with Paul. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's like. I know it sounds cliche and stuff, but it almost becomes like siblings or like family and all that kind of stuff. You know, people that you love, you know, I always tell people there's probably 90% of them that I love and there's the 10% that I dislike, but I can, honestly, I can say that about everybody I know, including my own family. Yeah. There's there's things that you love about family members and there's things that you, you know, think about when you might not have gone along with one of your brothers or sisters at some point in your lives and sometimes it gets pretty, pretty uh, awkward or ugly. But I, I look at relationships with people like that. You got to make them work for you, and they do have very, very domineering, strong personalities. Um, they're very intelligent and very charismatic guys. Yeah. I mean, they walk in a room; they they pretty much take over the rooms. Yeah. They have that kind of thing about them. So, um, but I've learned a lot from them, big time, a lot. Um, and I think that's important, you know, try to take all the positive things out of the situations, not, don't try to find everything wrong with it. You know, the glass is half full, it's not yeah. half empty. And yeah. you have to try to maintain that point of view, I think, with everything. If you do that, you'll be better served, I believe. And and, and Gene and Paul, they've always been like best mates kind of vibe? It's, well, it, it, I mean... T- they're like siblings to really? me. Really? And yeah. I, I mean, I'll give you a good example. My older brother and I were really opposite 
When we were younger, we kind of hung out. And then as we got, once we got to high school, he was a year older. And then he, he started hanging around with a completely different crowd of people. Even some of our friends used to say, how come John doesn't hang out with us anymore? Well, we, I realized later my brother was, into, he was gay. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know it at that time. Right. But he was into a different... Same. I think he re realized at that point, by the time he was like 15 or 16, he realized his orientation and who he was. And he realized, I don't really associate and relate to, you know, because we all hung around a lot of the same group of people. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he didn't anymore. Yeah. And then I could tell we were always would argue and, and be at odds about things. But as we got older and became adults... Um, we were really cool with each other right. because we'd grown up, obviously, yeah. and we yeah. had an understanding and open-minded view of each other and what we did. And I think we had respect because he was a dancer. He was a ballet and modern dancer. Wow. And um, uh, he lived in New York and uh, was in a dance company and uh, doing that until he got sick and he died of AIDS. Right. But, um, but we ended up, I was always happy that we always had made peace and had a great respect and understand and appreciation for each other. I remember he came to see me. He was living in Belgium because his dance company, they were commissioned by the Belgian gov government. Wow, so for, he was really badass. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One time he was in Mark Moore's dance company and they did um, the Nutcracker Suite. It was like a modern adaptation rather than the traditional classical one. And... Um, Baryshnikov was the lead. My brother was Baryshnikov's understudy. Wow. So he was... He was serious bad. He was legit. Yeah. yeah. He was legit. Damn. Um, but he was living in Belgium. The, the dance company, Mark Morris, they were commissioned by the Belgian government. They had a three-year contract. So he lived in Brussels for three years. Yeah. And they were paid by the government. Um, because over there, they really appreciate all the fine arts, as yeah. they call it. Yep. Theater, dance classical music and um i remember he came to see me in 91 with alice cooper and um so you know it was kind of cool because here he's in a famous dance company and i'm playing like big arenas with alice cooper so we both kind of were able to kind of share like we both kind of had made it to a certain level yeah and then th we had a real mutual respect and understanding for each other how cool you know? that's super cool man. yeah it was cool wow so i mean paul stanley i mean god man i remember some of my most vivid um, memories as a kid is singing, I must have been about seven, singing I Was Made to Love You, I I was made made to love you, you to a chicken school. You know, oh, when that yeah. song come out, I, I remember doing that in school. Oh, I mean, that whole Did you song. see Kiss in Australia? Ever? I never saw Kiss. Okay, because I know the first time I think was 80, 1980. Right, yeah. I they played hit there. Australia and it was huge. I mean, I had the masks and all the, all yeah. the, the gear. I mean, I God. played there a bunch of times. Oh, in Australia a bunch of times. Bunch of times well, I yeah. played with Brian May there, Alice Cooper a bunch of times. Wow. Um, and Kiss a bunch of times and on my own. Yeah. But I don't think, Brian, I mean, Gary Moore didn't play down there. No, Gary never made and, it. I didn't I, yeah, I'm trying to think of what other bands might have played there that I was with. I know I played a bunch of times with Kiss, probably at least half a dozen yeah. times. Oh, Australia's a huge... Yeah, they love Kiss. We were supposed to be there last December, then it got postponed. Paul got sick, and we ended up not going. And we ended up going to Japan only. Um, so we were supposed to, hopefully sometime in the future, depending yeah. on when things, whatever happens, we'll go back there and be able to make that up. Now, now Paul, uh, he's, is he deaf? He only is, yeah, he only has, um, he only hears in one ear. He's deaf in one ear. Man, I, I remember seeing a story on him. His story is amazing. I mean, what an intelligent dude. Yeah. Really cool. Well, you got to think about that. I tell people, you know, Paul's got a really 
you know, when people say people have a good ear for music, you know, people have a good understanding, good point of view, perspective, you know, mixing tones and things like that. And it's pretty amazing when you think that he was able to do that, saying how he did in those early days of Kiss and fronting the band and all that stuff. Think about that when he had to learn how to do that at an early age, how to adapt to that. But he didn't, like he said, that's how he knew it. So wow. he's hearing it from, he's not hearing stereo like we do. Yeah. And he mixes records and, I mean, he's got a really keen sense of of hearing things the right way. I mean, a lot of times when he's, like, he, we, we just did, he's working on a project, the Soul Station thing. It's all, like, we did a bunch of originals and then a lot of covers of Motown stuff. And I played drums on it. And Paul would, you know, we're on tour. He's bringing out the mixes and playing stuff for me. And I appreciate because yeah, I know he respects my opinion because it'll be, what do you think about this? And I go, oh, you know, I think, you know, you need more, a little more male voices in the backgrounds yeah. because the blend's not really right. It's too much of a girl's voices. And then he, the next day he goes, you know, you're right. I'm going to put some male voices on. So, you know, I know he respects. <laughs> he listens, yeah. Yeah, he listens. But the thing is, I can tell when he hear like, he'll get mixes sent to him by the, the his producer, co-producer. And then he'll listen to it. And then like he'll, I can tell he knows Oh, I, I need to put, I want to put these kind of extra voices and I want to put some of these throwaway lines. Eric, I want you to come in and you and he gets me and one of the other background singers to put these vocal lines in. I'm thinking, you know, his instincts are right. He hears it the right way. He's got really great ideas. And, um, you know, we all have our point of view, how we think about things. But it's interesting that sometimes people have a different point of view and you go, oh, I wouldn't have thought that. Yeah. And that's really cool. Wow. But it's really nice if you can have that mutual respect to at least listen to each you don't i mean bottom line is somebody's got to drive the car yeah that's why they're called like you know the leader or executive producer somebody gets the final say yeah. and of course it's going to be him because it's his his thing yeah but he does listen to outside people's points of views because he's smart enough to know what you said about being intelligent he's smart enough to know that hey i've got these people here because i know I think they're good musicians and talented and they have something to say and they might offer something that's going to just maybe make it different or better. Yeah. So I got to at least hear them out. Yeah. And yeah. I, they're always good like that. Gene and Paul both are really good like that. Wow, that's But that's I've also cool. earned their respect. Don't forget yeah. it. It take you earned. It took a while. Like I tell people, you can't just walk in a room and say, oh, you got to respect me because look at who I played with. Yeah. No, you have to earn their respect. Yeah. yeah. You know, you, you don't demand respect. You earn it. And you earn it by showing that one, first, that you'll respect them and listen to them and that you could do it. I've always told people, when you audition for a band, you have to first show them that you can play it their way. Play, like when I learned the Queen songs, I learned them verbatim off the record. Yeah. Because I thought, what's Brian going to know? He's going to know the way Cozy Powell played on his solo records or the way Roger Taylor played on the Queen records. So I have to make it feel familiar. Yeah. So play what he's kind of used to or heard, or at least in the ballpark. Then... If you want to put your own personality in, then you can do that. If they give you the artistic license to do that, that but way, yeah. ultimately the key is go in and show them that you can give them what they want, yeah. not what you think it should be. And that's why I think people butt heads, um, and sometimes it doesn't work out because they kind of go, "Well, I'm so and so, and you hired me, and this is how I play." Well, that might be true in certain situations, and like if I brought Brian May, I, I clearly wouldn't question him how to play but a funny thing is you know i remember when axel rose was working on chinese democracy and brian may went down and played a bunch of leads on it yep. originally i don't remember how many songs maybe three or five and i remember i went to brian lives over here at hancock park um 
he has a house here since like 1980. Right. And uh, so we went out to dinner one night and I took him to a club and got him to get up and jam and stuff, which was cool. And so we were hanging out and he goes, you know, at that time, you know, he goes like, don't, don't tell anybody, you know, I'm playing you this stuff. So he played me the Guns N' Roses stuff, the Chinese democracy stuff with him on guitar. Wow. And it sounded, it sounded fucking great. But Axel didn't like it and never used it. Damn. And Brian, I could tell, was, you know, he's like, what do you think? I go, it's really good. And I think he told me that Axel didn't like the one thing he wanted to use. I don't know if it was Buckethead or Bumblefoot, one of those yeah, other guys. He wanted to use one of those guys' stuff. And I think Axel, you know, I like Chinese, I like Chinese democracy. Yeah. I really, I think some of it's cool. I get what he was trying to do. He was trying to keep it moving forward. You know, you can't make which a lot of people don't realize. And that, this is why I at least respect Axel on this point of view. You can't make Appetite for Destruction in perpetuity. You know, ACDC can get away with it because that's what they're known for. Their records kind of have a real continuity and familiarity. And I mean, they almost sound very similar. Yeah. But, nobody, but that's what they do. They're like four on the floor in yeah. your face, rock and roll. And you, you kind of, you wouldn't want them to do anything else. No. But Guns N' Roses... Or just like bands like Kiss, they're not going to make those first couple records forever. No. You know, we can't stay stuck in time. And a lot of fans, they are emotionally connected to when they first heard or discovered a band and they're 15 or 18 years old and they want it to see, feel and look and sound like that forever. Even when they're 50, it's like, you're not 16 anymore. And you're, <laughs> yeah, how can you expect yeah, right. the band to be what they were back then either? It's just, it's not reasonable, it's not fair. Yeah. But... Um, the point I was making is like Brian May, I mean, that guy doesn't play a bad solo. Every solo is like perfect, tasteful, the right thing. I mean, he's one of my favorites of all time. Iron Man. Uh, I mean, him and uh, Hendrix. I love Hendrix. Yeah. And uh, Jeff Beck. Those are my like three tops. And, um, I mean, and you got to play with, I mean, Brian May and Gary Moore. I mean, you got to play with yeah, the best I, guys on the planet. And Ronnie Montrose, I played in his band, yep. which that was great. I mean, Ronnie was always one of my favorites. I love that first Montrose album. Yep. And Ronnie's another one that's got great feel and tone and a lot of depth. I mean, that guy played all styles of music. I mean, he was out touring with Tony Williams and Billy Cobham in the late 70s. I mean, he was playing, that guy could play with anybody, yep. you know, if he wanted to. I mean, I think Joe Bonamassa is a kind of another one like that. Yeah, yeah. Joe could play with anybody. Joe can play, yeah. Do you like Joe's playing? Yeah. I mean, he, to me, he sounds... He hasn't got a distinct sound. He sounds kind of like everyone, but really everyone amazingly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> He's like ridiculous. I, I mean, Derek Sherinian um, is doing a solo record, yep. keyboard player, and Joe did a solo. He just came in and just blew down two solos, and Derek sent me like the videotape of Joe doing it. Ridiculous. It's so good, man. I mean, he just... He's got the all the right feel and tones and everything for whatever music he's doing. He's like you said, he just he does everything not good. He does everything great. Amazing, yeah. He's yeah. everything is great. The tone, the feel, the right licks, yeah. the taste. You know, he's he's just a killer guitar player. And he's a hell of a nice guy. Yeah, he's really nice. He was really cool when he came in. We we enjoyed his his uh he was really honest, really open too, which was cool. You know, and I love that he's a bit. You know, they. I don't know if you've ever been to. They do those things they call Hollywood Gun Club, where it's a bunch of guitar players get together and they hang out. Usually, we do it about once a month or every month and a half or so right. over at Baroni's or over there in um, Van Nuys at the restaurant. People meet there yep. and order like food, pizza, or whatever. And then people bring like show and tell. They bring a cool old guitar, and after that. People open their guitar cases and go around and show each other the cool guitars. Oh, right, okay. And Joe always brings, and uh, Howard Lease from Heart, yep. Howard always brought 
really good guitars too. He's got great stuff. And uh, but um, Joe always brings like. You know, bring like a 58 Flying V or something killer. You know, That's always better. something unique and killer. And a lot of other guys bring some great stuff as well. Yeah. Um, I got some cool guitars and I was going to bring some, but I, I'm a drummer, but I'm a guitar geek. So I go because I like... That's awesome. I love guitars so much that I like... I look at guitars like art. For me, yes. I love looking at them. Yeah. I'd rather go look at... A, I'd rather go into a guitar shop and look at vintage guitars than go to an art museum, personally. Yeah, yeah. I'm right with you there. I love that. So, tell me this. So you're in Kiss. I mean, one of the biggest rock bands of all time. The makeup, man. How? <laughs> that must have been a whole other thing to deal with and to learn, right? Oh, yeah. How was that? Um, well, the f I'd never... Well, it's interesting. The first time I put on makeup, Paul Stanley and Tommy Thayer, Ace was still in the band, Ace Fraley. Yep. So they showed me how to put the makeup on. They kind of basically put it on me, and we did a, a photo shoot with Niels Lozauer because they were, we were going to Australia and Japan. Yep. So they told the promoters, Peter Chris is not coming. Eric Singer is going to be the drummer. They sent them new photos, and they actually changed because some people said, oh, you know, there's always been this 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 misnomer which is not true you know fake news as they say and people always like to spin things to suit their agendas they people were saying that they went down there and didn't tell anybody and had them dress up as peter chris and didn't it, that's not true right. they i did a photo session they sent the photos they did an insert in the tour book and then they changed the posters all around town right. all the posters in australia had me on the posters wow. um so that's not true and they told everybody that i was playing drums yeah and it, it, it was a natural progression because i had been the drummer before so and i knew the material and and they knew that i could come in and you know acclimate and fill into what they were doing i mean the only thing they never told me how to play the only thing paul ever said to me in the beginning was you know this isn't how we were doing it before because before it was like you know like on uh, like a supercharged version of kiss right so i was playing a lot of double bass and kind of playing really a lot of overplaying and a lot of busy chops and stuff like that which was very common in the 80s and 90s yeah. of rock drummers doing that kind of style yeah. and paul said you know we're not you know we're not doing that it's more you got to play more traditional like the songs were on the original records more like a live one right. and play it you know tone it down but i already knew that because when we had done mtv unplugged in 95 before the reunion tour if you go watch mtv unplugged and listen to we're playing a lot of the old material you'll see that i'm playing a single bass kit small stripped down kit and i was playing very very straight ahead very for the songs more traditionally and i had at that point i had done that on my own i right. i just decided as from 92 when i joined the band did the first tour i kind of started realizing you know i kind of want to go back and start listening to the records because we started playing a lot of older material i remember saying to bruce kulik you know, we should start like kind of paying more attention to the way they were playing the records and be a little more, excuse me, a little more traditional toned down and play more that way. I think it suits that material better. Yeah. So yeah. we were kind of, we kind of took it upon ourselves to make a more concerted effort to do that. So it's funny that people think like, oh, the, they told him to play like Peter and they told him to not to play that way. It's like, no. I mean, Paul did say we're not doing that. He didn't have to tell me because MTV Unplugged shows you right there that, I was already doing that already anyways. Doing it, yeah. Kinda yeah. I kinda I think part of being mature and a seasoned 
honest musician is to realize that you have to play for the songs, you have to play for the band, and you have to put your ego aside. Yeah, I could show off and over, you know, try to prove like, hey, look how I can play. I have more chops than this guy. It's like it's not about that. Yeah, it's yeah. you know, it's not about that. It's about playing. You know, Peter had a style and a vibe that fit what they were doing, and it was it was the right. You know, he was absolutely the right guy in that original band. So you have to be respectful and mindful of that. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So the playing with makeup, how is that to deal with? Well, I never, I never got to practice with it or even know what it was like. We were supposed to do a production rehearsal when we got to Japan, yeah. just so we could try all the uh, the lifts out and fireworks, and I would have a sense of what's going on and know what it felt like to do it. Well, they didn't get the gear set up enough, oh. and we didn't get to do it. So. I popped my cherry on that first night. Wow. In makeup, first time for me was first time for the crowd. First time them seeing me in makeup was my first time doing it. And I do remember it being kind of surreal. I do remember because the drums would come down out of the light truss and be in the show. And I remember so coming... you're doing all this for the first time? Yeah. Wow. On that stage. And I remember thinking to myself, when as I'm coming down... Because you remember, I was a Kiss fan as a kid, 15 right. years old, first record. And I saw them when I was like just turning 16 on their first album tour, I saw that. And so, you know, I was right in the front row when I was a kid. Now yeah. here, all of a sudden I'm coming down, I had this very surreal feeling, and I remember thinking, I really felt like out-of-body experience, yeah. which when you've heard people describe it, yeah. this was that sensation. I'm coming down the riser, and I remember looking and going, wow, this is kind of weird. This is surreal. There's Gene and Paul and Ace, Fraley. I'm playing, I'm, I'm playing, these guys are in makeup. And I felt, I literally felt like I was inside of like a suit or something. Yeah. Because I go, wow. And but I'm playing drums. I'm playing in Kiss in makeup with these guys. But I'm playing. It's me playing drums. And I'm on the other side now. So it was like you know because I remembered being that kid. Yeah. Being here now you're reverse. Yeah. And uh, it was a very. I only felt that sensation that one time ever. That's a mind trip. That's it makes you stop right. Yeah. It was like I said. It was an out of body surreal experience. It was definitely, I won't forget it because it, well, I literally felt like I was in a different place. Like, yeah. like, like seeing inside your mind's eye, like you were outside looking at yourself. Yeah. It yeah. was very surreal. Um, and it was, it was at the beginning of the show as you were coming down. And then after that, it was like, you know, it was no problem. And um, you, you're obviously, um, like sweating and all that with the makeup. What is it? You is sweat it? through it. You sweat through it. Cause you put powder, you put what they call like setting powder and baby powder. So you have a flat. You don't have a grease. It's not. It's grease paint, mm -hmm. but you tone it down to make it look satiny or flash, matte finished. Right. So you sweat through it. But one thing you have to learn to do is you can't touch your. You know, if you're sweating, you have salt in your eyes or all kinds of sweat. You can't touch your face. So no. you learn to take. Um, the, you learn the little tricks through the year. So you take a wet washcloth, a damp washcloth, and I roll it up in a ball. So if I have sweat in my eyes, I just blot my eyes, blot with, eyes. and w because it's damp yep. the makeup doesn't stick to it right okay. and if it's and because it's damp and cool it kind of cools you down you can kind of you can just pat your face like this and get the extra sweat off but a lot of a lot of it you know um you know you sweat through it and some of it because of sweating through it it starts to come off by the end of the show you look you can tell it's right. worn off a bit yeah yeah I, I i've got a, a mate that worked with you guys on some of the tours did some tech stuff and he, he called me up. He's like, man, Eric, he's got to be the most pyrotechnic drummer in the world right now. 
Oh, yeah. Like, you guys still don't hold back. I saw some footage in Madison oh. Square Garden that was just oh, like, yeah. fuck. And, I, and, well, it's gotten better in some ways because sometimes the stuff, they've gotten to be, you know, not as bad, the smoke. Yep. And they use exhaust fans. That, some of the buildings that you play in, the arenas have exhaust fans. They draw it out right. constantly. It's, it's for recirculation. Yep. Keep fresh air. Um, and they draw it out. But sometimes, I've gotten burnt a few times. I've had pyro, like, thank God I had the makeup on. I remember one time, it, I, I've got a few burn marks here. <laughs> one time a piece of dry ice um, came out of the thing and it stuck on my back. I have a scar about this big because it stuck to me. And I, all of a sudden I'm feeling something burning. And I thought it was a piece of pyro. It was the dry ice. Fuck. That stuff will burn right into yeah, your skin. Yeah, right. And a, another time I remember it um, hit my face. Like, I'm playing it, man. Bam. I mean, I'm lucky it didn't hit my eye because yeah. it went right here across my cheek. And it didn't burn me. It burnt my lip because I had a little bit of a burn mark on my lip because the lipstick is not as protected. Yeah. But I put on the makeup pretty heavy. Um, and then with the powder, so it protected me from getting burnt on my face. But, um, you know, I've had some close calls. That's, that's intense. I mean, that's a lot of heat, too. To oh, major. Oh, there's times when... <laughs> but you have so much adrenaline. Right. Adrenaline's pretty amazing. Yeah. Like it helped if you're really sick. I mean, I played under the most sick, worst conditions, and I got through it, you know? Wow. Um, I've told people, think about when you've had the worst flu or throwing up, chills in bed, can't get out of bed. I got out of bed and played the show. Damn. And I've done it a few bunch of times through and the, the years. I imagine the last thing you want to do is put fucking makeup on. I've never missed a show ever yet. Wow. Um, but I came close last year. Yeah. I got really sick. Yeah. I got bad flu. I got it twice, but the second time I got really bad. I was so run down. I was so weak. I mean, it was hard to play. I was literally playing like on autopilot. I don't know how I did it. I remember I was so sick one night. I'm thinking as we're coming down, I'm going, wow, I feel like I might just black out any time. And that, our show's two hours and 10 minutes. Wow. And I did it. We And we had three shows in a row to end that leg of the tour. And I was so sick. I went to the doctor. They had a doctor come and see me, and they gave me IV fluids on the on the the Friday night show. I felt a little bit better Saturday, but by Sunday I was so run down. And on top of it, I had gone to a dentist a couple days before we played Nashville. I was I remember I was trying to put the makeup, and I kept getting dizzy. I'd have to get up and walk around the room, and and because I, I couldn't focus, yep. I couldn't get my eyes to focus. I couldn't keep my hands straight. It was really difficult, and I played. I don't know how I did it. And then the next day, they had a doctor come to my room, and then my, I had a bad toothache, so I went to the dentist, and, and I had a abscessed tooth on top of it. So I was really run down with the flu, so they put me on heavy antibiotics, which really drained me. Yeah. They had me on steroids and painkillers, and I still did all those last shows. And then as soon as I got back, we went, came home on a Sunday. I went Monday morning and got, the, uh, got a root canal to fix that. Yeah. And I tell you, I was really weak for about. It took me about three weeks to get fully back to strength. Uh, I was weak. I felt really weak and run down yeah. for a, at least a good two weeks. By about three weeks after that, I finally got came back and got my strength back. And we had a three week break, so it really then I was okay. Yeah. But yeah. Um, like I got sick this year in the beginning of the tour, which makes everybody wonder. A lot of us were discussing, we think a lot of people have gotten this COVID and they just don't know it. They were asymptomatic right. or got mild, typical Infections. flu symptoms. Yeah. I've never been tested for antibodies or anything like that to know, but I know people were at our shows that were sick. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I don't know if you've, have you gotten tested at all? No, no, not yet. But yeah. a lot of people got sick on our tour. 
I've not had anybody say that they had COVID, but a fan was at our show in Oakland, and I found out like about 14 days later, somebody told me that one of the fans called me up and go, Eric, this guy was at your show. He just got out of the hospital. He was at your show in Oakland. And I remember walking up to him and talking to him. Hey, how you doing? Oh, damn. He was in a backstage area. Yeah. He was never around Gene and Paul, but he was around Tommy and I. Yeah. So then I called up Tommy that night. I go, hey, Tommy, somebody told me this guy was sick. So the next day, I called up Tommy. I go, look, at, I got to call everybody and let them know. Because now I find out this guy posted on Facebook that it was true. Yeah. That he talked about his ordeal. So I called up Gene and Paul and Doc. I sent everybody a message. And the people that I knew were around just said, hey, this guy was at our show, but it's been 16 days now. Right. And nobody was showing any, none of us were showing any symptoms. It's already Same. been 16 days at this point when, yeah. they, when we found out. Right. So I said, it was on this date. Nobody's symptomatic, so I'm assuming that everybody's okay. It's out of the 14-day period of what right. they were claiming was, but yep. who, who really who knows? knows? Yeah. Because it keeps changing. Nobody's being honest with all this. It's so politicized. It's pathetic. But anyways, um, I know for a fact that we were, at least that guy we were around, that he was in the hospital and had tested positive. So wow. we were definitely around people. Yeah. And who all, who, I mean, who else do we know we might have been around? I found out another guy was at a show two nights before that, but he was not backstage. The drummer from Faster Pussycat, this guy Chad Stewart, and I heard he got really sick and was in the hospital at Cedar Sinai for like five or six days with COVID-19. And he was at our show, but he was not backstage. Right. So the point is, peep, and how about this? I never thought, you know, I, I never talked to the band and brought this up to him. I said, you, you know, we played Staples Center on a Wednesday night. The night before the, the Lakers played, yeah, right. And against the New Jersey Nets. And four of the New Jersey Nets tested positive and that week later. And then they said two of the Lakers tested positive. We were, our dressing room was in one of those yeah. locker rooms. Shit. <laughs> we were in the backstage area the, de- the next day. All of our crew and everyone was in that building the next day. Yeah. So I'm sure some people have gotten sick. But I wasn't. I never got sick since then. I had gotten sick in the beginning of the tour with some kind of flu bug thing. Yeah. I remember I took uh, Z-Pack, you know, zithromycin, and um, and I just to make sure I didn't because I didn't want to get bronchial because I have to sing so much. Yeah. And I'm really get crazy about being able to sing. So that's why I'm very disciplined about resting and staying quiet and all that kind of stuff. After the show, I go right to my room and I I have a, like a. 10, 12-hour moratorium on myself. I do not speak or talk on the phone yeah. until the next day. I mean, I'm really, like, religious about it. And so I know Gene got a little... I mean, a bunch of us got, like, some bug flu in the beginning of the tour in, like, early February. Right. So who knows? Yeah, could have been it. I mean, none of, I mean, I don't know if anyone's been tested, like I said. So I don't know. I'd like to get tested for the antibodies just to find out if I, if I have them. Yeah, be good to know. I imagine... Man, I can't even think... How many tours you've done? I've toured a little bit. I got to do the world and all that kind of stuff, but a a bee's dick to what you've done. And I struggled with it, just coming back home, coming back to life and dealing with that. How have you handled that throughout your whole life and coming back to reality and then going out again? And how do you say better living through pharmaceuticals? No. Um, (laughs) no, um, Honestly, I try to stay away from all that kind of stuff. When I'm on tour, like for example, I'll take ibuprofen all the time for am- inflammatory stuff. Like before I play, I take it 
Um, I do Pedialyte. I try to take care of my body, take mm -hmm. vitamins, rest right. And if I need sleep aids, sometimes I, I've, I've decided, you know, you have to pick your poison. Either get some sleep. If you need some aid or help, then you have to use that. Yep. If not, you're going to get what? Insomnia get, and get run down and get sick. Yeah. So, but I've been, I never let it get out of hand or addicted to anything. I've never, you know, because I'm not into drugs and all that. But if you need sleeping aids to help you, because I am, an, I'm a night owl and insomniac anyways. Yeah. And I'm always so wired after the shows. But I've learned to be really good about, and disciplined about it. And, um, and you just learn, you know, I just found that you just learn to deal with it. A lot of times you think you can't do stuff. It's pretty amazing what the human body could do Indeed. when you have to do it. Yeah. Like you go to Australia and you get turned around. You go, all right, it's not going to be fun, but you just do it. Yeah. The, the one, there's little tricks you learn. Like first thing I do when I get on the plane, I set my watch to the next time zone. So I'm already thinking psychologically and adapting myself mentally to thinking, okay, it's this time in Australia, or if okay. I'm going to Sydney, for yep. example. So I know it's already, you know, whatever tomorrow, this time. Yep. And so, and then you try to plan your sleep on the plane so you can wake up when it's more morning there. Mm -hmm. And another thing I found is when you travel, don't eat heavy. Um, you know, you, a lot of people don't realize you can order so many different ver uh, variations of special meals on planes. Um, sometimes... You could say, I just want fruit plates only. And they'll just give you all fruit. So you can just eat really, really light. I find eating light, yeah. eating very little, trying to go to sleep at the right time. And if you have to take a sleeping pill, that's the time to use sleeping pills to go to bed. So when you wake up, it's the time in like the morning where you're waking up. Right? Yeah. Anything like that. Whatever yeah. you find that works for you. Because yeah. everybody's different. You know, Everybody's body is its own little laboratory. Yeah. Yeah. And I found some stuff... You know, that wouldn't work. Like Paul, I was having problems sleeping and certain things weren't working. I remember Paul Stanley saying, why don't you try this stuff, Restoril? It really works really good for me. I took one, nothing. Took the second one, nothing. I called Paul the next day. I go, Paul, I took two of those things and it didn't do anything for me. He goes, what? <laughs> he goes, you took two and nothing? I go, yeah. He goes, I take one and it knocks me out. I'm going, wow. but that goes to show you that everybody's different. Too. And I'm a lightweight. I mean, I take, I drink one drink and I'm high. Yeah. Are you, what about back in the day when you first were getting on tours and all that? Because I know when I first got on my tour, I mean, we went ballistic and quickly ran out of steam very quickly. I never, no, I never been into, I never, I'm not much of a drinker, never have been. Yeah. I'm a social drinker. I mean, I have, you know, I'll drink a, sometimes I'll drink a little bit of wine or a couple glasses of wine, but usually I'll have one drink or two and I nurse it over, over time. Right. I just don't, I don't like being... I don't like being high and I don't like being out of control. Yeah. I mean, I did drugs and stuff when I was a kid and um, I saw what it did to a lot of my friends and stuff and, you know, some of them are dead now yeah. because of it. And so, but it's just, you know, I'm not being judgmental about that. Yeah. I just think that for me, it just doesn't work for me and I've, I've seen the downside of all that. I, I mean, because you, you were around, you went through all of that when debauchery was what the game was all about. Just... It well, I grew up, don't forget, I grew up in the 70s, yeah. so, and I had an older brother and older sister, right. so you had that influence. I mean, all of us, everyone in my family, we all did drugs and stuff at, at different times in our lives and yeah. all experimented. Everybody, yeah. it was, I mean, all of our friends did. Yeah. I yeah. remember when my brother um, had, a, had, uh, had OD'd, and we had to put him in the hospital, and my... Um, so we had to come to Jesus moment. We had to tell my dad. Oh wow! And that's when we all told him that we'd all been doing drugs, and we'd all, he was like, 
Wow. You know, he was dumbfounded. He yeah. had no clue. Yeah. We'd all been doing drugs and be getting high <laughs> since we were 12 years old. Damn. Yeah. I mean, we started doing drugs in sixth grade yeah. back then. Um, sixth or seventh grade, everybody was smoking weed. I started smoking cigarettes in, at 12 years old and weed right around the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And then we experimented with, you know, pills, acid. Yeah. Never got into heroin though. Right. I never no needles, nothing like that. Right. And I didn't, you know, something. The the main thing I realized right off the bat, really early on, that I didn't like being out of control. Yeah. And when you're high, you're out of control. It means you're not in control of your body if you get to a certain point. Same thing with alcohol. Yeah. And I don't like that feeling. And you, you obviously just with the bands and the, at the, at that time, you would have seen a lot of that around you, like a lot of other musicians dealing with that heavy shit, right? Um, yeah. Without yeah. naming names, I've definitely seen yeah. some people have problems with different stuff and, and letting it get out of control. And, and I've seen how the sad thing is, is that sometimes it's the people that are in control making the decisions. Right. And that's the thing that's frustrating. When you don't get high and the person that's making the decisions that affect your livelihood and your life and they get they have issues and they're getting high and you realize that they're not making good choices because they're being affected by that and there's nothing you can do yeah. that's that's you know that's, that that was something i kind of had to learn and you know because when you're younger and inexperienced and somewhat maybe neat, naive or green you don't really know how to deal with it as well and yeah. then eventually you learn then i think as you get older, you're not afraid maybe to speak up and say something to somebody. That's if you kind had of to drive, you're the passenger in a car and they're just completely off the rails. And, and they're driving the car. Fuck. And they're driving the car. Yeah. That's I will say. Like in Kiss, you've got two guys that are the leaders that make the decisions, but these guys generally make the right decision and yeah. they make good choices. Or I mean, they're business savvy, aren't they? Right. They're, they're, well, they're, they're higher, they're smarter and more experienced. Mind you, they've made mistakes too when they were younger. Right. Everybody does. That's part of the learning curve and the growing process. But I've been in bands where people would say it was a democracy and we're all equal, but these guys are in charge. They get the final say. Well, wait a minute. If you, I understand somebody's got to make a final executive decision, but when the person that's making the final decision is not very business savvy and not really qualified based on their prior record. If you have a good track record, fine. Yeah. When your track record is not good and you want to make the final decision, and in other words, your decisions are going to be my livelihood, that's a that's really difficult situation to be in. And I was in that a few times, and I know it, it didn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah, I've been in that. I opened my mouth and I me got too. fired. Yeah. Well, that's why I got fired. <laughs> yeah. I'll be honest fired. with you. I got fired from one of the bands I was in for that exact reason because I spoke out about what I felt was wrong. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, people are going to think that they were right, but I know, I, well, I know that history proved that I made the, you know, the right decision. I, well, I, I think that my point of view was, was the right decision of what I wanted things to, you know, I never want things just for myself. I want it right. for what's best for everybody. But some people see it as, oh, you just want your own way. And it's not about, or trying to have control. It's never about that for me. Yeah. It's about doing what's right and the best for all people. But some people don't see it that way, and that's okay. Yeah. And um, bottom line is, um, I, I look back on all those experiences that those were learning experiences that maybe I needed to do to realize you got to know when it's worth fighting about and when it's worth not fighting about. And sometimes... You know, I said sometimes if you don't make changes, change is forced upon you. I realized I ended up getting forced out of those bands because it wasn't meant to be. It's like you can't fight City Hall. No. And 
It was never going to get better. And in, in, in all honesty, they actually did me a favor yeah. by getting rid of me. Yeah. Because it really, had they not done that, it led me to the next situations that put me on the right path and yeah. a much better, healthier, productive path. You know, I mean, I've always told people, I'm not, I'm not trying to be some rich rock star. I just want to, I just always wanted to play music and be in a band, and, and you know, I want to be in the most successful situations I can be in because I want to make a living in the music business. And whether we like it or not, it's called music business, not music friends. It's yeah. not, it's not as much as you want to hang out with your friends and and make that a big part of it and have that uh, a component. If you don't treat it like a business, somebody else will, and they will take advantage of you. And yeah. I've seen it too many times. Yeah, I mean, you've you've worked. You've mentioned some managers. I mean, Doc was. I mean, these guys were notorious, right? Like for managers and like they were big time guys. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, Doc. But I, Doc's. I like Doc. Out of all the managers I've worked with, and I've worked with some that were all cool. Yeah. I mean, I get it. They're business guys. They're they're gonna always put business first. They're in it to make money. Yeah. All right, guys, we're going to leave it there. We're going to come back to Eric in the next couple of weeks. We've uh, we've got a lot coming up. I think tonight, actually, me and Bruce are hanging with Pete Bernstein. Uh, Peter Bernstein. So that'll be fun. Um, so we'll share that with you in the next few weeks. Sit back and enjoy uh, Vibe Station here with Mr. Scotty Henderson. <laughs> uh, Scotty. And uh, we'll catch you guys all next week. Go to the new website. Check out Patreon and uh, check out Bruce's show and his new video coming out. Stay safe, take care, and we'll see you guys all next episode. Bye.